some amount of the incredible psychological distress that young people are now going through in this country is because they don't know how to make decisions and the world is not helping them. The world is, in fact, making it harder and harder for them to make decisions that they have any confidence in. They second guess themselves about everything. It, it seems almost inevitable that A, you're pushed to look for the best, and we call people who do this maximizers, and B, you're basically chasing a phantom because there really is no best. Uh, but with that as your, with, with the best as your goal, you're always gonna end up feeling like you failed. Welcome back. Today we are joined by Barry Schwartz, an American psychologist, the author of the book, The Paradox of Choice, Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing, and the TED book, Why We Work. Professor Schwartz studies the link between economics and psychology, offering startling insights into modern life. His talks at TED have been watched by more than 30 million people. In today's episode, we discuss why infinite choice can lead to paralysis and exhaustion, setting unreasonably high expectations, questioning our choices before we even make them, and blaming our failures entirely on ourselves. We also speak about how to make the best choice, if it even exists, and how to make a decision which will lead to the highest satisfaction and peace of mind. Enjoy my conversation with Barry Schwartz. Barry, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to speak with you. And I would like to start this conversation by going deeper behind the paradox of choice. Mm -hmm. Why more is not always more and why ample choice may actually make people feel worse, which is ironic, but that's true. I can relate to that a lot because even if I look at myself, for instance, I go to the store to buy a simple thing like a white shirt and I have 20 or like 100 options. They all look the same except price. Then I cannot make that choice. I feel frustrated and I just leave the store without buying anything. So how we can balance it and why having many choices can actually lead to anxiety and for many people make them feel miserable. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, I think, um, I think the, uh, the challenge uh, in, in uh, coming to grips with this is that the ideology in the U.S. for sure and most of the democratic West is that freedom is the most important value and you don't have freedom unless you have choice and so giving people choice gives them freedom and if some choice if some freedom is good more freedom is better if some choice is good more choice is better and what an economist would say and as a Wharton MBA student you probably heard some version of this is when you add options you make no one worse off because you don't you can ignore the new options if you don't care and someone else who does care will find something from the new set of options. So adding options makes nobody worse off and makes somebody better off. So add options as much as you possibly can. And that all seems quite logical and reasonable. 
But what the research suggested and it surprised people is that when you when there are too many options, instead of being liberated by them, people feel paralyzed. They can't like they like the story you just told. They walk out with nothing. Uh, you go to watch a movie on Netflix, and after 40 minutes, you turn off your TV and read a book because you can't decide what movie to watch. Um, and it, not only that, but if people do choose and they choose well, they're less satisfied because with all these options, you think, well, one of them is perfect. And what you get may be good, but not perfect. And so compared to what you were expecting, it feels like you failed. And you have this sense that somewhere out there, there really was the perfect white shirt, and I couldn't find it. Um, so it's really, uh, it's counterintuitive from the point of view of, of the, you know, the beliefs of our culture. Uh, but I think once you start thinking about it, it seems to make sense. And almost everybody has had, by now, has had experiences like this. So it's not unfamiliar, I don't think, to anyone anymore. When I wrote the book, which is some time ago, it was, it was very strange to people. And slowly people started, uh, you know, yeah, that happened to me two weeks ago. Oh, God, and my friend couldn't pick a cell phone and this and that and the other. And slowly it, became, it went from being, oh, that's ridiculous, to being, well, it's obvious. So, yeah, I so, can definitely relate to that because I also feel that, you know, like I grew up in Russia, right? Like usually when you go to the store, there is one type of bread. If you get candy for Christmas or New Year's, like one type of candy. It's amazing. You're happy. Then I moved here to the U.S., all those options. The first few times I felt really satisfied and happy to have this selection, yeah. but then it became so overwhelming that it took all the joy from the process. Yeah. You know, there's a story um, that somebody sent me an email about. Uh, he's a, an academic. I don't remember what field, but he was having a visitor, a distinguished academic from Eastern Europe, maybe Russia. And he knew that they liked to eat um, meat, with, uh, often with mustard. So they went to the market, and he took his colleague and planted him in the aisle that has the mustard. And he said, I'm going to pick up various things for dinner, and you pick out a mustard you like. He comes back 20 minutes later. The guy's still standing there, and he has no idea how to choose a mustard. So it's exactly what you're describing. He was just over, you know, no doubt he was, he was awed by the opportunity at first. But then when the time came to actually make a choice, it's like, how the hell do I decide? So, and it's not just about trivial things like what mustard you buy. It's also, I think, important things. Um, what college do you go to if you're a teenager applying to college? One of my, my grandkids is a senior in high school. And I have a, t a couple of other grandkids have already gone through this. And it's impossible to decide that there is a college that's the right college for you. 
And the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter very much. Why? Well, I mean, it matters, but not in ways that you can predict. You know, it's going to depend on who your economics teacher is in your freshman economics course. You know, if you have a bad teacher, then you get turned off to the field. If you have a good teacher, then you get turned on to the field. Are you going to know? When you're applying to college, whether you're going to get a good or a bad economics teacher, are you going to have a romantic relationship that's going to have a huge impact on what college is like for you? Do you know that in advance? Is your roommate going to be a nightmare or become a lifelong friend? You don't know any of these things. So it matters where you go to college, but it doesn't matter when you're trying to decide. The things that matter, you can't know about at the time you're deciding. Pretty much. Is it because mostly depends on luck? Yeah, pretty much a matter of luck. Uh, who your roommate is and who, you get, who happens to be teaching the section of economics that you take. Um, I became a psychologist because the person who taught me introduction to psychology as a college for, when I was a college freshman it was a superstar teacher. He came to be recognized as one of the great teachers of psychology. I'd never heard of him. I didn't know what psychology even was. And after his class, all I wanted to do was take psychology. If I had had a class with a different teacher, God knows what my, what my life would have been. It, there's a lot of luck. So speaking about choice and that having like fewer options can actually lead to more satisfaction. Is it because of the opportunity cost and also sense of responsibility that comes with, you know, like when you make a choice out of 20 options and the choice you made, let's say, then you're not satisfied and you keep thinking like, oh, there is a better alternative. Now you feel responsible because... Yes. You have so many options and you chose the wrong one. Right. So I think both of those things contribute. But interestingly, if you talk to an economist about opportunity cost, technically the opportunity cost is what you're giving up in the second best alternative. And it doesn't matter whether there are three alternatives or 3,000. The opportunity cost is only what you're giving up in the second best. So if you go to a restaurant that has four entrees and you choose the salmon instead of the chicken, then the opportunity cost for getting the salmon is that you didn't get the chicken. If you go to a restaurant that has 200 entrees and it's, again, the salmon and the chicken and a million others, the opportunity cost is the same. The salmon, the opportunity cost for choosing the salmon is the chicken. And so it shouldn't matter how many other options there are because you wouldn't have chosen them anyway. But so that's what sort of the logic is of opportunity cost. But the psychologic is that every one of those options matters. You know, you can imagine that the, the side dish with the, with the, you know, the pasta had this attractive feature to it, even though you wouldn't have ordered it. And, the, uh, you know, I don't know, turkey had this attractive feature to it, and the vegetarian souffle had this attractive feature to it. And and you've got all these uh, alternatives that you've rejected, and each of them has something attractive. And they all subtract from the satisfaction you get out of what you actually chose. So 
But but I think you're right. The way we approach these things, we regard the uh, the uh, alternatives we reject as missed opportunities, and we take responsibility for decisions that aren't aren't perfect because they're you know we decided it was up to us. Nobody had a gun to our heads. And that makes the disappointment even more painful because you think you could have avoided it if only you had chosen more wisely. Um, but it's true, you know, with, with going to college, with choosing a job, with romantic partnerships, it's just, it's pervasive. And I think some amount of the incredible psychological distress that young people are now going through in this country is because they don't know how to make decisions and the world is not helping them. The world is in fact making it harder and harder for them to make decisions that they have any confidence in. They second guess themselves about everything. But then how to make the best decision and speaking about the best, does it even exist? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are some areas in life where maybe it does exist. Uh, but I think basically what you're, the problem with your white shirts, as you said, is that they're all the same. Now, of course, they're not all exactly the same. But when you're producing 200 versions of the same thing, the differences among the candidates are going to be minuscule. You know, you're not going to be able to tell one from another. And yet somehow you think one of those is the right one for me to choose. And when you get into every prestigious university in the United States, the differences among them are going to be minuscule. But you think, no, 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 no. There's a right one. And I got to figure out what the right one is. So in, in, it, it seems almost inevitable that A, you're pushed to look for the best, and we call people who do this maximizers, and B, you're basically chasing a phantom because there really is no best. Uh, but with that as your, with, with the best as your goal, you're always going to end up feeling like you failed. You know, anytime you have a bad day, you're going to say, oh, I made a bad choice. I should have gone someplace else. Is it because of the comparison? Comparison has a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a New Yorker cartoon that I often show when I give talks about this. Of a young, it's a young woman with a college sweatshirt on. And the sweatshirt says, brown, parentheses, but my first choice was Yale. Now, imagine going to Brown, a spectacular university. And every day that you're there, what you tell yourself is that you'd have been happier if only you'd gone to Yale. You know, you're not going to take full advantage of what Brown has to offer. You're always going to imagine that this class, if you had taken it at Yale, would have been better. And this party would have been better. And the food would have been better, what have you. And the result is you're at this great place. And mostly what you're experiencing is how it falls short in your mind. So I think looking for the best is the worst strategy a person can have. Then what should we look for? Good enough. Good enough based on looking at, at ourselves yesterday, if we improved 
or not or good enough in comparison to others? Well, it's going to be some of both. And it's also going to be when you're trying to get a cell phone, you ask yourself, what do I care about in a cell phone? What matters? Uh, and having come up, having give, gotten an answer to that question for yourself, you then look at cell phones. And as soon as you find one that meets your standards, you stop looking. Uh, now, are you going to get the best cell phone? No. Is there a best cell phone? I doubt it. Um, so you'll end up with a cell phone that does the things you want your phone to do. And it'll t have taken you 20 minutes instead of 20 days to figure out which cell phone that is. And you don't worry much about whether the person or, uh, around the corner has one that seems to be better than the one you got. You, you basically stop comparing. What the question you're asking is, does this do what I want a cell phone to do? And if the answer to that is yes, you're not interested in what other people's cell phones do. Um, so it takes practice to have this approach to decision making. And it seems almost un-American to say, I just want good enough. You know, everything in our environment is pushing us and telling us that only the best will do. And that's just a recipe for misery, I think. Exactly, because everyone is saying you have to be type A, you always should be better than somebody else. Yep. And somehow they define it as if you're better than the rest, then you will feel fulfilled, happy, yep. then it will define your success. And if you're worthy and good enough or not, which is not true. <laughs> no, I think it's not true. And, you know, the, when you tell people look for good enough, what people hear you say is, oh, you want me to settle. And the, describing somebody as settling is not a neutral description. When I say, well, you just settled for that job, uh, I'm criticizing you. Right? You should have had higher standards. So telling people that good enough is good enough is telling them that settling is good enough. And everything in the culture is telling them that settling is not good enough. So it's very hard to resist the temptation to, you know, seek only the best and evaluate yourself in comparison to other people and evaluate your choices in comparison to other options that were out there. And because it's so hard to modulate, you know, it's good to be aware that there are alternatives because maybe there is a better alternative and you're just ignorant of it. And if somebody made you aware of it, you'd go, oh, this breakfast cereal is better than the one that I have every morning. I'm going to switch. So it's nice when that happens because your, your standards keep sort of going up slowly as you discover things that are better than what you, you're used to. And that's good. But what it seems to unleash is a search for the best, and that's not good. And I don't know how you control it. <laughs> if that was going to, if you were going to ask me, I don't know how you keep your aspirations. Uh, one thing I sometimes say in talks is the secret to happiness is low expectations. That's an overstatement, but I think 
what is not an overstatement is that the secret to happiness is modest expectations, realistic expectations, reasonable expectations. And there's, again, nothing in the culture that encourages us to have reasonable expectations. It helps to have lower expectations. I think it does. I think it does. But that, you know, that doesn't mean that you should go through life with no no expectations or with no standards. But it does mean that there is a, that setting standards matters. And it is almost certainly not productive for your standard to be the best that's available. Choices you make decisions you make, they will eventually define who you are, your personality, how others perceive you. So, but then you want to have the best standards for yourself so you can perform at your best and be satisfied with whatever you get in well, return. But if, you're, if, if, you're, if you're only going to be satisfied if you're performing at your best, then I suspect what's going to happen is you're never going to be satisfied. So I think even there, you want to be a good enough romantic partner and a good enough parent and a good enough um, marketing specialist and not be the best. That, that you know, you might turn out to be the best, but that's probably not what you should be aspiring to. And that doesn't mean you're, you give up on ambition. It doesn't mean you give up on trying to improve in each of these areas. It just means that you, when you, when you fall short compared to some standard of the best, you can still get satisfaction because you think you did a good job. Now, the only thing that counts as a good job is if you do it better than anybody else. As long as you're trying and you're better than, let's say, you used to be, then you're winning because the best doesn't exist. (laughs) I think that's right. And of course, it doesn't help that your supervisor, your boss, may have a different idea. (laughs) You know, and keep pushing everyone to try to do better than everybody else that works at the company. Like, do you you want this to be the best podcast out there? I want it to be helpful to others. There are too many podcasts, I think like more than a million right now. (laughs) And uh, it's impossible to be the best. It's like how you even define it. That's right. As long as someone can get something of value, that's the goal. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. The other question that I have, and I feel many people experience this when they make a decision, then after that, they start double guessing, like, like doubt kicks in. Do you think that when we make a decision, we just need to stop and move on? Or there is any value in like still thinking if it's the best or not and change your decision after? Well, you know, I think if you can keep it under control, it makes sense to evaluate your decisions after you've made them because you'd like to be able to make better decisions going forward. Uh, I spent more money on a cell phone than I needed to, uh, for example. Um, but the trouble is that the concern is that it doesn't, it's hard to keep it under control. 
And so asking yourself, has this lived up to what I needed? Has this lived up to what I expected? And controlling your expectations is better. But I don't think you can simply go through life saying, well, I'm just going to make the best out of every, every decision I make. I'll make the best of it. Because then you, uh, you, know, you sort of kill the opportunity to learn from experience. Uh, I mean, I think you should try to make the best of your decisions, but I don't think you should close your eyes to the possibility that something else you could have chosen would have served you better. Um, but it's very hard to sort of stay in that zone where you are learning from every decision you make, but not always disappointed with the results of the decisions you make. You're right, because you never know if the other decision alternative is better because, again, like so many other factors can be involved. And even maybe today, the other decision would be better. But, but like a year from now, right. it's not. That's right. So, you know, what I think is, is often true in, um, in romantic attachments Most people, I believe, think that the challenge there is search. It's about finding the right person. And once you have found the right person, the rest takes care of itself. And I think that's exactly wrong. I think you find a good person, and then you put your effort into turning this into a good relationship. So the work starts after you've chosen. And I think a lot of people think the work ends after you've chosen. So, and if you beat yourself up with the choice part of it, you don't have the energy left to then invest, you know, your heart and soul in making the relationship a good relationship because you've exhausted yourself finding this person. So, and I think with many decisions, the question you can ask is how you, the question you should ask is, How can I turn this decision into a good one? How can I make this job as good as it can be for me? Uh, What what stance should I take when I come into work every day? How do I sort of reconceptualize what I'm doing so that it seems more important, more significant, something, uh, instead of, oh, I made a mistake, let me me look for another job. so it always comes down to your perspective on things. Well, uh, you know, look, there are there are horrible jobs. And if you get stuck in one, you know, trying to turn it into something good is not the right strategy. This is a bad job, a bad situation. Try to leave it. And there are God knows horrible relationships. And telling people, well, you it's up to you to turn a terrible relationship into a good one. Well, yes, but there are limits. And you have to be able to recognize that you this is just a bad, a toxic relationship, and the right thing to do is end it. Uh, so it's a matter of perspective, but at the same time, you have to acknowledge that people do make mistakes, or there are aspects of the decisions that are hidden from them, and when they become apparent, they realize they made a mistake, and then they have to change the situation, not just change the way they think about a bad situation. Some situations are bad. Um, 
you know, there are people living in parts of the world uh, and telling them, well, look at the bright side is, it, you know, it's, it, it's worse than cruel. There is no bright side. Life is hard and bad in almost every respect. And telling me, put a smile on your face, you could be dead. That just doesn't do much. So, so I think uh, perspective matters a lot, but you also want people to feel able to recognize that the situation they're in is one they have to leave if they can. So important. And two questions that I love asking people. The first one is, is there something that you thought was true? It may be an idea or anything related to the way you view the world that you changed your mind about it or started questioning it recently. And the second question, what is the best and the worst advice you were ever given? Well, I, 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 I guess, you know, at my age, I've gotten set in my way, so I don't think there are I don't think there's anything recently that has really forced me to change my thinking. But earlier in my career, I really was very impressed with the amazing power of incentives to get people to do the right thing. And I came to see that incentives are often incredibly destructive and often the worst possible way to try to encourage people to do the right thing. So I've sort of become an anti-incentive person, but that didn't happen yesterday. That happened, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and almost everything I've written since then has had at least a piece in it about how badly incentives can distort what we actually need and want from the people in our lives. Um, the worst piece of advice I was ever given was to leave Swarthmore College, where I spent 45 years and take another job that was offered to me. Luckily, I didn't take that advice. <laughs> but it was easy to see why I got that advice, but I knew myself well enough to know that it was it would have been a mistake for me to do that. I guess another bad piece of advice is I was told as a high school sophomore that maybe I was too young to have a serious romantic relationship because I had one. I ignored that advice and my wife and I have now been married for 57 years. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> and it started I'm so glad that you ignored that advice. <laughs> me too. That started in high school. And you know, if I had been the parent in that situation, I probably would have given the same advice. You know, you're too young to know anything. Uh and so I could see people being concerned that I was being very premature in the commitment that I was prepared to make. But, you know, I look back 57 years later and I knock on wood that I did not take that advice. So there you have it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you would like to support the podcast, the most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube and leave a review. Thank you. Talk soon.